Welcome to episode six of the Lucchino Brief. I'm your host, Steve Lucchino. Very excited for today's show. I have a good friend of mine here, Ryan Warner. Ryan is a Marine combat veteran. He served two tours in Fallujah. So we're just going to see where this where this goes. I'm going to let Ryan introduce himself. He's going to tell you about his history, and I'm just going to let him talk as much as he wants because I think I think there's a lot of value in hearing about a veteran. You know, Ryan's been all over. Ryan volunteered with Team Rubicon, hurricane relief efforts in Puerto Rico and in Texas and Houston. Uh, so Ryan's been all over. He's had a lot of world experience. So I really want to, uh, you know, talk about the coddling of the American mind and and you know how people feel oppressed in America when you know it, that's subjective because Ryan has seen real oppression. So I also want him to just talk about his military experience. I think a lot of us who appreciate the military appreciate some of the shit that Ryan's probably been been through. And you know, if you know anything about the history of Iraq, the surge um, when shit was real bad over there, it was in Ramadi and Fallujah. So obviously, everybody knows who Chris Kyle is when. Chris Kyle was kind of the overwatch for the Marines in and and Ramadi. Um, but Fallujah was it was a shitty one too. It just didn't have a Chris Kyle there to make a movie about. So uh, there was a lot of stuff uh, that Ryan has to say, and I'm I'm gonna let him take it. There's a few topics that I want to touch on, but I'm really just gonna let Ryan do his thing. Well, thanks, uh, Steve, for letting me be a part of this incredible podcast. I think. There's a lot of people that have questions and concerns and would like to know more information about the things that you've been uh, presenting presenting to your social media audience as well as, you know, friends and family. And um, Yeah, so a little bit about me. We'll just kick it off and we'll just get right into it. <clears throat> uh, graduated here from Lincoln, Nebraska, Northeast, alum of 2003, right after graduated, went straight into the Marine Corps, uh, went with a couple buddies. Uh, got through boot camp, went to uh, MCRD San Diego, got through boot camp, probably one of the toughest things I've ever did. Um, and then went to school of infantry, school of infantry, uh, decided to become a machine gunner, you know, being six, two and 230 pounds joining the Marine Corps. I was kind of, a uh, a relic. Um, the new, the new Marine was lean and mean and fighting and, uh, not so much beer and food and <laughs> working out and more runs and wearing tiny green shorts. And I remember my instructor came up to me, he goes, you big son of a bitch. If you're not carrying a 50 cal machine gun, I don't want you to be a part of this. So I automatically felt I had to become a machine gunner. Um, so my fat ass waddled over to the machine gun side and <laughs> that's it kind of made history. Um, school of infantry was fun. Uh, you know, they call it a school of infantry. It's less school and more hazing. Um, you become a, you know, an incredible war fighter though. They, uh, I would say that the, the infantry schools that the Marine Corps has, um, is hands down probably one of the best elements that they provide, especially at the basic level. I mean, you can start looking at some of your more advanced, uh, infantry and war fighting schools that the military offers across the navies and the army, um, and the air force as well as the Marine Corps, but basic advanced infantry knowledge. Nobody does it like the Marine Corps does. Um, it's an, you know, on top of the 13 week boot camp, it's another 14 week MOS school where you learn your craft. Um, and you know, that's where I fell in love with being a machine gunner. Uh, cool to know is after we graduated, we went, uh, I was selected to become a part of second battalion, seventh Marines. And there's a, a ton of, Incredible history with Chesty Puller, John Basalone, yeah. um, 
Smedley Butler, all those guys served in 2-7. They're all Medal of Honor winners. Um, Chesty Puller was one of the greatest machine gunners that this world will ever know. And I'm honored to be a part of that battalion and be a part of Chesty Puller. That is uh, that is an awesome military history thing. And John Bassalone, actually, if you guys haven't watched it, the Pacific, the HBO miniseries is absolutely fantastic. Actually, I don't remember because I know Chesty served in World War II, but did he make it through Korea? Yeah, 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 he did. Um, Just, you know, absolute savages, uh, specimens of what it means to be a machine gunner in a, in a, in a war environment that suppression by fire is what kept tens of thousands of Marines and army troops alive. You know, there's, there's, there's a pride that comes with being a machine gunner and I, it's hard to express. It's everybody on the battlefield when uh, a 50 cal or a Mark 19 or an M240 Golf shows up or M60 back during Vietnam, everybody's dick kind of gets hard and they're, uh, <laughs> they, they know that it's going to be a much easier fight than it would have been. There are some distinct sounds that if you've watched any History Channel stuff or watched anywhere, I mean, watch anything on the military, there are some very distinct sounds and it is that 50 caliber machine gun. It's the A-10 Warthog machine gun. Uh, you know, it's those sounds that you hear for World War II. One of the most dreaded sounds was the MG-42. Or, I mean, a, a, a machine gun ahead of its time that the, that the Nazis had. And uh, there are just those distinct sounds that even me as a civilian who has never served, like when you hear that sound on the History Channel or if it's a, it's a movie, it almost gives you – Ryan's getting the chills right now because it almost gives you the chills. And now my son Dominic, he's all about – army man stuff he does he goes around and he makes the the a10 warthog sound now when the machine guns go off <laughs> that's that's how we that's how he shoots his brother's planes down so those distinct sounds even civilians you can relate to that now imagine being under fire and having that being like your guardian angel and you know the camaraderie and the brotherhood that's built in battle i can only imagine but think you know he knows that's my brother ryan ryan's got my back the confidence and the morale boost that that sound can give our soldiers in battle um, when you your your watchdog, your your protector, your boy is behind that machine gun just laying down hate to the enemy. Um, it's it's just I can't imagine um, you know the the if you can have feelings of comfort in battle, I can I can imagine that that's maybe the closest thing you can have when you feel like your watchdog, your boy uh, has got that machine gun at your back and protecting you. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. Uh- the three things that every infantryman loves in combat when it comes to safety and security is air support, tank support, and machine guns. You know, if you have one of those three things, uh, it's, it's the, the battles in your favor. And that's what we strive for. You know, you look at the coalition forces that went through Iraq, um, between the army, the air force, um, some British air force, um, as well as the Marine Corps, and then your special operations units. Obviously, there was Navy SEAL embedded teams everywhere throughout Ramadi and Fallujah. Um, you know, you start hearing that automatic fire, whether it come from an airship, whether it come from a tank, whether it come from a Humvee with a mounted 50 cal. I mean, you know that at least you got some angels there. Okay, I want to dive into the years that you were in Fallujah. Uh, you know, maybe talk about the conditions of the people because you probably had to kick down a few doors um, and root out insurgents. Um, so maybe talk about the conditions and the oppressive state that people in those third world countries live in. Um, your, your experience. I'm just going to let you roll with that. Fallujah is an interesting city. Um, if you were to 
pull a little history on it um, and look at the conditions pre-Iraq war, it was actually a beautiful city. You know, Saddam, as a big a piece of shit he was, he loved his money, he loved his bars, he loved his casinos, um, he lived like a king. Uh, you know, the dude had 20, 30, 40 palaces all across Iraq and his family lived in them and he treated his uh, Iraqi army as if they were, you know, a militia against the people. You know, as long as you served, you were taken care of. And unfortunately, that meant, you know, being destructive to your own population. Um, but hell, that's what I guess being a dictator is all about. Um, yeah, so looking at what it's like for a populace that doesn't want anything to do with their dictator, um, you send in the U.S. forces and you make them leave. You know, they... Uh, for three days, they dropped flyers all over the city. They told them they were required to get out. And if they didn't get out, they were told that they were uh, known terrorists and they would be engaged. U.S. troops were coming in, went into the city. And, you know, you see young. I think the most disturbing thing for me is that you find teenage boys um, who think they're men, who've been convinced that they're men, who convinced that they're fighting for Allah and they're doing the right thing. Um and they can barely hold a rifle, but yet they're expected to engage with the best fighting force this world's ever known. I guess from a man's point of view and a young man's point of view, you know, it's the same things that as, as Americans that we would probably do if, if somebody was invading our country. You'd find the 13, 14, 15, 16 year old boys that were able to fight. I mean, hell, we've done it before. The Civil War, there was teenagers fighting. The American Revolutionary War, there was teenagers fighting. Shit, World War II, they lied about their age. World War II. Men were lying about their age to be able to serve their country. So you got to have a little bit of respect and some em empathy given the situation that these young men were being fed lies um, of why they need to sit there and fight when they could have left with their mother and the rest of their family over the, you know, the previous three days. Okay, we're back. Ryan and I just took a little short break. Um, we're going to have to take a couple of breaks here. Um, you know, it's the we were just talking in the break and uh i mean we really are lucky to have men like ryan warner um the stuff that these guys go through uh is for love of country um really is uh it's it's an emotional thing to talk about even for people that didn't serve um i mean to hear the stories and the experiences of men like this um we are the greatest country in the world. And, um, damn, you know, they always say there's something different about Marines. Um, and uh, there really is. I'm going to pass the mic back to Ryan and, uh, I'm going to let Ryan dive into, um, to give you guys a real, a real firsthand insight of what some of our, our fighting soldiers saw over there. Um, yeah, I'm just gonna, I'm going to let him roll with it. I'm gonna let Ryan pick up from here. Um, Yeah, so I was just talking with Steve during the break, and, uh, you know, sometimes this stuff gets, it's not even emotional, it's just hard to regurgitate it, because now, 17 years post-fact, as a father and a husband and a grown man and not a young Marine that was fighting for his country, the way you see things is a little different. Um, so, we'll just kind of start off with some of the things that we went through. Um, Obviously, once Fallujah was cleared out, game control 
set up a bunch of ECPs, CCPs, which are entry control points, command control points, um, FOBs, which are called forward operating bases. Um, you know, you, you basically have a good foothold inside of Fallujah, which is a known pipeline to Baghdad from other cities. And that's why it was so imperative for the U.S. military to hold this city. Um, you know, I like to look at like it's Omaha on the I-80. Omaha has a large footprint when it comes to the availability to transport drugs and uh, human trafficking um, across the country. And if you don't have a good presence in Omaha on the I-80, you can't control what goes to Chicago all the way down to Houston if you don't want to or all the way out to Denver. And that's really what Fallujah was, um, at least from the intelligence that I had as a dumb grunt, um, you know, in the Marine Corps at the age of 18. Um, so Fallujah's cleared out. Hypothetically, it's cleared, you know, uh, 3-1, 3rd uh, Battalion, 1st Marines really did an outstanding job um, in ensuring that the majority of the city was prepared for us to now start uh, creating a like basically a Ford operating city. That's what, that's what Fallujah became. We developed a base out there called Camp Mech, which then turned into Camp Fallujah. Um, and that's what helped gain a foothold in conquering Ramadi, as well as then de developing some um, standards for what Baghdad was going to operate as the capital of Iraq. <clears throat> Obviously, Baghdad had been in engagement prior to Fallujah. Ramadi was, a you know, two years down the road was about to become a shit show, but nobody knows that at the time. Um, uh, so just some of the engagements we've been in, um, TQ was an air force base. And I only talk about all these things because the majority of this is not classified information. You could get on Wikipedia and talk about this. Um, some of the stories I'll tell, there's been articles published. Um, I'm grateful to have served during a time where, you know, you got guys like Chris Kyle that did an outstanding job in Ramadi serving with Jocko Willink, who's an outstanding, you know, Navy SEAL that's obviously changed a lot of my military brother's lives as well as civilian lives. I mean, the things he does now is incredible. Um, so TQ was an Air Force base um, about 15 miles outside of New Fallujah. Um, and there was a route that had to be constantly secured because everything flew into this Air Force base and then had to be convoyed into Fallujah to ensure that the Army and uh, the Marines um, had their supplies. As a weapons company with 2-7, a lot of our job had to do with basically securing intersections, ensuring that IEDs weren't being in place, ensuring that there wasn't ambushes set up. So 20 out of the 24 hours a day, it was constant driving, constant setting up, constant clearing. Um, and, uh, you know, young men in military, we all make mistakes, and especially um, when you're operating on reduced sleep when you're operating on fatigue, when you're operating on the immense amount of hormones uh, that are flowing through your body from getting in a firefight and then coming down from that fight or flight mode and then having to go through a recovery period, which almost makes you feel like depressed because you start to love this feeling of being engagement because it does give you that serotonin dump that you would get, you know, from drugs or from partying or i mean it, it becomes if yeah fuck from women it becomes part of it becomes part of embedded in your in your soul um you know so we're basically protecting this entire path that is that we know and we're taking absolute full responsibility 
that is providing supplies from an Air Force base to the city of Fallujah, which Echo Company of 2-7 had set up this massive base inside of Fallujah. And then there was Camp Fallujah on the outskirts of Fallujah that housed Air Force, Marine, Navy, Army. That was the big chow hall, which everybody loved. That was where you could go back and get some R&R and sleep for two, three days. Um, obviously, they secluded the Marines because we're a bunch of nasty savages. And then they put <laughs> Air Force and Army inside these nice little tents and they get massages and fucking eat McDonald's <laughs> and shit. <clears throat> Fuck you guys if you're listening. Um, they put us out on the outskirts in these little tin cans and basically said, well, your Humvees are good enough to sleep in when you're out on the road. Why can't you sleep in them when we're here? And fuck it. We just slept in the Humvees and stole all the muffins from the chow hall. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so anyways, December 1st, uh, um, my first deployment. And we're, you know, everything's cleared. Called in. Fox Company's running um, to the north, I believe, of the main route. They're running just basically security patrols. The Marine Corps hates using things like presence patrols and security patrols because we're a fighting force. Like we don't, I'm not here to fucking be a mall cop. Like let's either kick in a door and, you know, take something. We're not an occupying force. Right. We're not an occupying force. Um, You know, you always hear things like tip of the spear. The Marine Corps, you know, there's 170,000 active Marines where the the Army has over 2 million active duty. The Marine Corps is not used to be an occupying force. It's, there's a reason why I said back to the original statement that, our basic infantry schools are like advanced infantry schools for most other military branches. Um, so anyways, Fox Company, uh, one of their squads is securing the neighborhood that's to the north of this route. Everything's good. I can recall this like it was yesterday. And uh, we're sitting on this overwatch position watching this intersection. I don't remember all the roads. Um, it's, fuck, it's been a long time. I want to say it was route Michigan and route iron which became designated black because the ieds down the road uh, were destructive enough to destroy abrams tanks and if you've ever seen an abrams tanks i mean you think your girlfriend gets mad with a baseball bat to your car you should see what these abram tanks can take um they're indestructible but yet they developed bombs that in ieds that somehow could rip these tanks apart um so fox company secured this little village they find a house that they're going to create um you know, a little Ford operating base out of just temporarily. Um, and like good Marines, you know, they set up an outer cordon, they set up an inner cordon, they set up a fire watch, they get inside, they, you know, drop their packs and start to eat some chow. Little did they know that that house was set up with tripwire, a pressure plate, when the Marines stepped on it, killed 10 out of the 12, and I'm sitting on an overwatch and we literally see the house blow up. Um, we didn't really know what happened at the time, until about five, six minutes later, um, they call in for QRF and you just hear, you know, panic over the radio. And uh, the, the Marines of the other squads from Fox Platoon start to close in on the position and we drive down there. And I mean, if you can imagine what a house looks like, the house you live in, um, one story house with three, four bedrooms and a pretty big living room and there's 12 Marines inside. and you see 10 out of the 12s, you know, just body parts everywhere. And it's a, it's a eye-opening experience when, you know, you went through two months of basically trying to clear out a city and establish a foothold. And there's still so much work to do. Yeah. So much work to do. Um, 
and it just reminds me of, you know, and this is, I think, why so many military men and women that served during Iraq and Afghanistan period, they're always on constant high alert because you think what you've done is like all that needs to be done. It's not like war was 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years ago where you clear something and it's done and the people there are like grateful that you did it. Like, you know, you removed a massive population from their city, which the majority of them didn't support you in the first place because of their religion or because of their ideology or their indoctrination into what they, they feel they're supposed to believe. Um, and you look at them as humans and you have that empathy for them, but you also are like, these guys are fucking animals. Like, you know, Chris Cross said, they're savages. Yeah, uh, there's, we, we didn't want to be there any more than they wanted us there, but there was a reason why we were. Um, and I, I, I'll, I'll say this to the day I die, you know, there's, for the amount of shit that the American military force went through in Iraq and Afghanistan, we operated as pure consummate professionals because the rules of engagement that changed over from 2003 through 2008 made us an easy target, in my opinion, which we shouldn't have been, but we are such a political sensitive society that heaven forbid we actually get involved into a war game that a that required us to be just as savage as they were. Yeah, touching on that, I think that a lot of people forget the history of war, or actually, better said, they don't know the history of war, and war is dirty, and America is expected to be held to this higher standard and, you know, go in and follow, you know, the Geneva Convention uh, rules and follow, I mean, when it comes down to it, they're trying to kill you, you're trying to kill them, are there really rules? You know, I like to compare it to MMA. Like they expect you guys to be in an MMA fight where there's a ref when the dude you're fighting is like, no, nah, this is a street fight, bro. And there ain't no ref. There ain't no rules. If I bite your ear, I bite your ear. And when you're, when you're fighting handcuffed like that, I mean, I can only imagine the frustration when you lose a brother and you lost a brother because of some bullshit pencil dick politician in DC making rules when they know nothing about, you know, the brotherhood formed in, in, in what battle is like. And again, I didn't serve. I don't know what that's like. I can imagine how upset I would be if I lost somebody like Ryan, uh, to some shitty rule that I shouldn't have had to follow. And if I didn't follow, we would all be court-martialed and, and be put in prison. So, um, I'm gonna let Ryan continue, but that's something I want to take note of. And we're going to touch on that later. Um, basically the the wokeification of the military and how liberalism has even invaded the military and it's, and it's taking our fighting forces and it's handcuffing them. I'm going to let Ryan continue on. Yeah, no, those are all good talking points. And it's, you know, it's, it's been a lot. I don't, I don't talk about this stuff much. In fact, you know, I've uh, spent some time over the past few days, once I was invited to do this, um, kind of making sure that the things I would talk about with, are okay from some of the brothers that I serve with that I still hold closer than my blood. Um, the uh, I think that's a good talking point, and we can transition back to some stories. But even as early as you know, two thousand three, two thousand four, two thousand five, two thousand six, uh, you you if if you were on the battlefield and you were told 
that regardless if this man had a rifle, regardless if this man pointed a rifle at you, the only way you were allowed to engage is if there was obviously positive identification and then intelligible action towards you makes you on the constant defense instead of being an offensive aggressor, which in my opinion, if you are deployed into another country, expected to do a mission, you're on the offense. Like that to me, defense means that you're defending something of your own. Never will I ever take Iraq as being my country. Never will I take as their culture and their views and their ideology as being mine. I'm an American and I expect freedom and liberty across the world. Do I know that's always going to be a fallacy? Absolutely. It's a pipe dream. I mean, it's 2021 and I'm starting to feel like we're fighting for our own liberties and freedoms here in the U.S. again. Um, so let me ask you this. We've had some good um, insight into what you had to do over there, what you experienced over there. So with what you saw over there and, and what you were put through for nine months of your lifetimes two for two deployments, how do you feel when somebody in America with an $800 iPhone, a house with, you know, it's in Nebraska, I think it's negative nine degrees today, but it's a nice 72 degrees in here. Um, you know, how do you feel when somebody like that who lives in America says they're oppressed and they're being held back and that life isn't fair and that they they deserve more. They're owed more. How does that make you feel as somebody who has defended the country, defended the rights that they bitch about, the country that they bitch about? As a combat veteran, give us some of your thoughts on those people who cry oppression. And this is not to, you know, degrade anybody who's actually experienced real oppression I guess that, that that itself is subjective, but let's be honest. In my opinion, in America, Joe Rogan has said this before, when our impoverished people are obese, are you really that oppressed? When our impoverished people have iPhones, they live in temperature-controlled houses where it can be negative nine degrees out and it's 70 degrees in their house, or it can be 110 degrees out and it's 68 degrees in their house, how oppressed are you really? And again, my main line of work is nutrition. So don't tell me that they're fat because they're access to, to it's, they only have access to low quality food. You still have to consume more than you burn. We're not going to go there because that's not what this podcast is about. But if you're trying to make that argument in your head, shut the hell up. It's a nonsensical argument. Now, regardless of quality of food, you have to consume far more calories than you burn to become obese. But Again, we have people in this country who are severely impoverished that are um, severely overweight. Anyways, I'm going to let Ryan give his thoughts on that. Um, fuck Steve's energies. It's like a drug, man. I can just come to a fucking podcast every day. Uh, no, he's absolutely right. There's um, the, the U.S. Uh, has influenced this victim mentality to where nothing's ever good enough. And it blows my mind because like Steve stated, you know, our worst is still most countries best. Um, you look at, and I, I can only speak on behalf of me. Um, I was a poor white kid that lived in a trailer with a single mom. I had one other brother. Um, and you know, my mother suffered from MS. She, uh, worked her ass off, got a college degree, had a great job. Unfortunately, as she started to progress in her career, her MS took over and, you know, kept us 
in the social status that we were as she was attempting to become successful. Um, so I, you know, when I hear people talk about oppression, I think to myself, well, I was a young white man living in a trailer park with living off of government funds and going to the hostess uh, bread store on 48th and Vine because of 48 cents bread loaf and 69 cents Little Debbie's were the best, you know, caloric content that my family could afford at the time. Um, not that that's an excuse, but I don't think I've ever used that for where I'm at today um, outside of its its fuel. Uh, you know, I I think one of the biggest things that we've forgotten as a country is that we're not all born into it. We're born into the opportunity. Um, you know, the silver spoon mentality is great for a lot of folks. And have we seen that become a, a, a plethora of our social media intake over the last 10 years? Absolutely. We see people live lifestyles that they've never earned, that they didn't fight for, that they didn't work hard for, that they didn't get an education for. But that doesn't mean you don't have the opportunity. I mean, at one point, somebody in their family line worked their ass off, made themselves successful and allowed their children or grandchildren to have a lifestyle that they didn't earn. Um, we've kind of become disconnected with uh, what liberty and freedom means. And it doesn't mean that you're guaranteed to have what everybody else has outside of you know, your standard human rights. But when you look at what a country like Iraq had when I was there, and um, one of the things that I forever talk about and uh, remains embedded in my head, there was houses we would clear and children that had mental health conditions or physical disabilities. I can recall it like it was yesterday. There was two little girls and they were on, they had collars and chains and they were attached to the front door with a chain. And both of them, you could tell, had some sort of mental illness. That to me shows exactly what oppression is. There's no human rights there. There's no freedoms to be um, successful there. I mean, the, the parents had those kids and they realized that they would probably, you know, live a less of a life or not, not be able to give the parents back something in the future. And they put them outside like they were dogs. Um, the houses we went through, well, nobody, most folks didn't have TVs. And this is 2004. I mean, 2004, most of the you know, privileged Americans I knew had multiple TVs in their houses, even if they were considered a lower social class. Hell, most of us were watching TV on our phones already in 2004. Um, dirt roads, most people don't have cars. If they do have cars, they're definitely not the cars that we're driving these days. Um, electricity, you know, Iraq ran off of a power grid and they controlled that power grid and and block sectors. So you'd get four to five hours of electricity throughout the day and it was ran off of the dam. And you basically had to live your life around those four to five hours of electricity that you were allowed to have. Um, you know, it made it easy as an American task force there because we could, you know, do our ventures during times when there wasn't electricity because when people don't have light, when people don't have entertainment, when people don't have things to do, most of them probably just take their boots off and put their rifle down and try to take a nap because there's nothing else to do. So it made it easy for us. 
but going back to the sta statement of oppression and how America lives, it absolutely blows my mind when I see people on social media, when I see people on our news networks attempt to even push this facade that America somehow is behind the power curve of what it's like to take care of our people. Are we perfect? No, absolutely not. Can we strive to do better? Yes. Are we still the best? There's without a doubt in my mind that we are the absolute best. Okay, we had a brief break there um, to collect ourselves and to yell at each other, <laughs> just, just in good fun. Um, I wanted to bring up a gentleman named Kurt Schlichter, who is a veteran. He is now a trial lawyer. Uh, he's a conservative uh, writer. Uh, he's a retired Army infantry colonel with a master's in strategic studies from the United States Army War College. I'm going to read you a quote from him, Ryan. He was on the Buck Sexton podcast the other day, and I was reading this as I was scooping the 97 inches of snow we got. Uh, quote, there is going to be a disastrous military defeat for the United States within the next few years by a serious government. Uh, Kurt goes on to list, um, you know, some of our adversarial governments, China, Russia, Iran, North Korea. And one of the things he cites is it's the fault of the military that isn't focused on winning wars, being a fighting force like you talked about. Um, but they're capitulating to the social justice warriors on the left. And one of his concerns is the direction of the military. And his point was, if you have just if you have conservative, right-leaning Republican parents who are discouraging their kids from joining the military, who are telling flat out telling their kids, like, no, son, you are not joining the military, no daughter, I guess nowadays, or no Z or whatever gender your kid is, um, which we're gonna touch on that too. And transgenders in the military, we gotta jump there. But um, you know, if we have just if we have conservatives who are no longer willing to join the military and fight for the country, what fighting force do we really have? I mean, I think the military is 80% um, Republican. They vote overwhelmingly for Donald Trump. Uh, I have three friends of mine who are Army Green Berets, and every single one of them on separate occasion have told me, and I quote, the majority of SF dudes, whether you're talking about Green Berets, uh, MARSOC Marines, Navy SEALs, Delta, they're right wingers. Um, yeah, yeah. You don't get, you don't get, uh, you, it's very seldom they'll say that you'll get a lefty in the most elite fighting forces, um, of the military. And I guess your experience, so you can, you can talk about that as, and you know, is, uh, what, you know, what, what political leanings do you feel like a lot of your brothers that you served with, where are they? I mean, I, I doubt you're going to find many socialists <laughs> in, in there. Um, but let's talk about Kurt Schlichter's quote, talking about there's going to be disastrous military defeat because, I want your perspective on that um, with what's going on today and, and the threats that we're seeing and how Beijing Biden is literally capitulating to China left and right. Uh, I don't think there is a single policy that he's enacted that's actually been detrimental to, to China and positive for the United States. And that's one thing that Trump did was Trump faced off against China and he let China know you're no longer going to screw us over. Uh, we're the United States is here and the America first policy and America seems to have taken a back seat. So, Tell us where you think the direction of the military is going. Tell us the, the effect you think uh, wokeism um, capitulating to the social justice warriors is having. And then let's dive right into uh, your opinion of transgender serving in the military. First, let's start off with we have more snow than Steve is tall. So the fact that he could <laughs> scoop his driveway is impressive. Um, yeah, so obviously that's a, a handful of subjects. Let's just start with from my experience dating back after my second deployment in Iraq. I re-enlisted to be a 
combat instructor and a machine gun instructor for School of Infantry. So I had the opportunity to now take the job and the billet that I loved and influence behaviors of young Marines as they transitioned into the infantry fleet force for the Marine Corps. In 2008, um, talking about Obama's term, obviously there was some military divide of what our true presence was supposed to be in Iraq and Afghanistan. And you'd start talking about the, the social pressure that the administration started feeling from getting troops back because what were we really gaining over there? Now, from being on the, on the ground, I can say, you know, um, it was heartening uh, to start to see some of the locals appreciate the military support there. Um, but from a political adversary, economical standpoint, I, I'd say it was probably a, a big investment with minimal return. Um, going into the School of Infantry, when I first started in instructor, it was balls to the wall. It was create the best Marine with the best tactics, uh, regardless of the route that it was needed to be taken. Um, I had the ability to say this Marine isn't fit to go to the infantry yet. Let's hold them back uh, for another, you know, two, three, four weeks. Hell, let's start them back at step one at School of Infantry, put them back through basic rifle course, and then maybe reselect uh, a MOS or re-engage back into his specific MOS and hope that he picks up it on him this time, rather be mentally or educationally or physically. Towards the end of my instructor billet, the amount of political change was atrocious. Uh, I remember being in some pretty heavy arguments um, with my superiors about some of the Marines that we were allowing to go into the fleet. And I took that very personally because they were a representation of my ability to make a great machine gunner and a great infantryman. And even though I felt they didn't hold the standard, um, we were starting to reduce physical, uh, I guess, it's the right word. Um, physical standards? PC yeah, physical standards. standards. Um, we were holding them to less of a uh, ability to actually utilize their weapon system. Um, you know, if, if, if the standard standardized test at the range was 80% of 100% of targets engaged were, you know, effectively engaged, um, and they missed that by five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10%, they'd get a waiver and still push into the fleet. Um, and, you know, you can look at that from different perspectives. But for me, that started to show me that there was other things at play than actually just making the greatest warfighter that the U.S. needed. Uh, going back to, you know, conversation with Steve, you know, the Marine Corps on a day-to-day -day basis has 175 to 180,000 active Marines um, with one-third of that, or one, actually more than one-third, probably closer to two-thirds of that actually being administrative personnel and one-third being actual on-the-ground troops that are, you know, meant to be the tip of the spear. We are the fighting element of the U.S. military when it comes to standardized operations. So to think that we're pushing young men into the fleet to be active infantrymen that didn't meet a standard that was once held, you know, so high started to, uh, you know, be quite frustrating for me. On that note, while I was an instructor at uh, School of Infantry, I had applied to go through a MESET program, which is a Marine enlisted commissioning program um, to become what's called a Mustang. I had achieved my bachelor's degree while I was active duty. 
Um, and all it took basically was a thumbs up for me to go to OCS, which is officer commissioning school to become an officer. I'd spent my time as a team leader, as a squad leader. Uh, and you know, now I'm a Sergeant holding a staff Sergeant billet at an instructor school. And I thought, Oh, why not go the officer route? Like I'd love to be in charge of a Marine platoon, um, and move forward from there. I'd worked my tail off. I'd been meritoriously promoted multiple times. I got my bachelor's degree while I was in and you know, I thought I was the perfect example with combat experience and instructor experience. And three times I got denied three years in a row because of a tattoo on my forearm. I'm, I got a lot of tattoos now, but at the time, tattoos were a part of the Naval and Marine Corps nostalgia. I mean, that was if you served in the Navy, you know, tattoos have been popular since, you know, 1940s, 50s, 60s. Uh, in my generation in the Marine Corps, guys had full sleeves and skulls and bullets and blood and death all over. Um, it was a memoir to the, you know, the things they've been through. And, you know, I had a simple cross on my arm from losing my mother. And it was the reason for three times that I wasn't good enough to be a commissioned officer in the United States Marine Corps that I'd basically given my life to for the last eight years. So I started to feel that uh, it was becoming less about actual war fighting and more about poster boy, picture perfect. What does the society of America need to be represented by a guy in a uniform type bullshit? Okay. We had to go pick up one of my boys from schools. Um, I, I provided Ryan a beverage and, you know, I, I throw out a white claw, a truly a reds, apple ale, uh, some other sort of cider in a Bud Light. And Ryan's a man. Ryan's a man, so he didn't hesitate. He grabbed the Bud Light. Uh, <laughs> um, I have a Zevia. He made fun of me. It's a Cherry Cola Zevia. Um, my body's the temple, Ryan. Um, uh, As it should. <laughs> actually, so a liberal was trolling my uh, Instagram today, and he kept on calling me overweight and telling me I need to lose weight. And uh, I... <laughs> Hey, no, yeah, that, I was like, dude, on, on, yeah, I mean, that, that, sound, that, that sounds like a douchebag, but I was like, that's what I was, he kept on telling me because I had a post about Pete Booty Keg and, uh, he's probably talking about Pete's airline. No, he was, he was telling me, he told me I needed a bra. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, I don't think you know what you're talking about or who you're speaking to. And this guy actually had little movies, you know? <laughs> Um, so it was, it was funny to be told by a liberal that I was fat and need to lose weight. And most of the people listening to this know that I'm a, I'm a fitness fanatic. And I, I guess I, without sounding like too much of a douche, like my version of fat is still pretty not fat. So <laughs> it was fun. Okay. So, uh, we talked about some of the wokeness in the military. I, I want Ryan's opinion on transgenders in the military. And, and just a fact I want to point out to people is that, transgender or body dysmorphia disorder is a diagnosed, a diagnosable mental condition is a medically recognized condition. So, um, you know, if I thought I was a dog and started jumping around like a dog on all fours and barking, you, you would, you would think that was wrong. I could say, well, I'm trans species. And if you're, uh, if you're not with me, then you're trans species phobic. And I hate that they put phobic and ism on everything because that means fear of dude, I'm not afraid that you want to chop your dick off. I, 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 there's, I, I'm not scared of you. Like I, a phobia is a fear. I don't have a fear of you. Um, it honestly, I don't even care. 
if you want to lop your salami off and call yourself Samantha instead of instead of Samuel, I don't care. I don't want them pushing that to my kids in school. I don't want to have to explain to my four-year-old why his kid's show has a transgender on it. I mean, that's not an age where we should be confusing children and introducing kids to things. That's my opinion. But I want to talk about their service in the military and Ryan's opinion of that. Now, let's take a note here that the transgender community has a, a rate of suicide. Numbers vary, but they're generally between 40 and 45%. So you're talking about a large a large number of transgender people that have a, a very high suicide rate. Um, you know, there's also studies that have dove into um, after transition, how uh, there's quite a few of them that, that actually regret their transition, regret the surgery they may have done. I found out from a one of my clients that, did you know, Ryan, that uh, Medicare, Medicaid actually covers uh, transition surgery now? I believe so does. Private insurance has to as well. And I want to say that the military, TRICARE, oh, yeah. started covering Yep. That. Yeah, so they all kind of go in line. Apparently, from what she explained to me is that they basically have to, but it's a $100,000 surgery to build a, a penis for a woman that wants to transition to a man, and the taxpayers are, are footing the bill on that one. So that was, to me, was mind-blowing. She was like, e, yeah, I actually contemplated not even telling you because I knew that one would fire you up, but I mean... I have a partially, you know, a, a partially deviated septum. And that's, I mean, that's to me, I had to go to a plastic surgery to get that fixed. That's going to cost me a lot of money. And I refuse to do it because I don't want to spend $8,000. I don't want to spend, I don't even remember my deductible is off the top of my head. It's not, not nice, but no, no, Medicare, Medicaid. If I want to lock my salami off, uh, they'll cover that. Um, so let's talk about it, right? What is your opinion of transgenders in the military? Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's to start. I've always believed that there's a slippery slope when you start making something socially acceptable that there's scientific or validation to what it, it really not is. Um, Steve Nail on the head, it, you know, I don't like using the terms like a mental condition because, you know, if you say that word, it, you lump it in with people that have other serious mental illnesses that can, you know, be come from combat, come from family trauma, come from domestic violence. It's, but there is enough scientific evidence to show that it's a, it's a dysmorphia. I mean, it's, it's, it's truly a, a stigmatic problem. And I think when you start to allow it to become uh, prevalent in our society, it, it creates that slippery slope effect where what's the next thing that we're going to allow to be socially acceptable. Serving in the military with, members that were allowed to be openly gay. Um, I have a lot of gay friends that I served with, um, both male and female, and I have absolutely no issue with serving next to them. They can provide the same human body that I can provide. Um, logistically and operationally, you do have to set up some certain accommodations to ensure that, you know, you're respecting the rights of one person the same way you're respecting the rights of the other person. When you start talking about the transgender community, um, I have a hard time of finding where we set up those operational and logistical benefits to where the return of allowing a small percentage of people to engage in a community that I'll be honest with you is absolutely disgusting for the majority of the time. Um, the military is, should not be set up on feelings and emotions 
um, and regard for oneself, but regard for a team and what's the best way and most effective and cost effective way to be the world's best fighting force. And I think that mentality has kind of been swept under the rug. And how do we become this socially responsible, um, let's allow anybody and everybody that wants to be whoever they want to be because we're telling them that's okay to join what should be only created to defend our country. The line in my head where I draw is, I want the best on the front line and I want it to be obviously one taxpayer savvy because you and I both support the military. Um, two, I want it to be the most effective. I don't want there to be anything that's involved with developing and creating these Marines and soldiers and uh, airmen and seamen that would withhold them from being the best version of themselves. When you start implementing a man who thinks he's a woman, still has male genitalia, still has male biology, um, still has male personality traits, and you embed him into a group of women, um, there is going to be some disruption of creating the best fighting force there is, and vice versa. We've already seen a large amount of, uh, how do you say this, um, training and physical expectations reduced because we are allowing females to be engaged in infantry units, not as a supporting element, but as a true O3 MOS. In the, in the Marine Corps, O3 is an MOS designator for infantry. Um, I feel I'm entitled to say this because I'm married to a woman who actually uh, deployed in 2008 to Afghanistan as an attachment to 3rd Battalion, 1st Marines, as one of the first female engagement teams, um, and to serve as an infantry rifleman. It was a test that the Marine Corps ran, and she volunteered for it. And uh, if you know my wife, she's an absolute physical specimen, and you know, she's about as ruthless as I am, if not more, to be honest with you. I think she deadlifts like over 300 pounds. Yes. No, she embarrasses me. <laughs> I, her deadlift's insane, and she's not very big. I mean, she's a she's a his liberal friend. She might be fat. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she's Hispanic, so it's, she, 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 oh yeah, she can't make yeah, you can't make more. She's Hispanic. She's cisgendered, so she uh, she identifies with the gender that she was born with. Privileged, <laughs> privileged, but no, she can't. Shit, she can't weigh more than one twenties, maybe one thirties. And yeah, I've seen uh, I've seen her deadlift. Actually, I. I, I worked out at a gym that she works out at for a short period of time and I saw her deadlift and and I, and I, I known you, I can't remember. Did we got introduced? Was it because of Chase, Chase Holmes? So you and I met, uh, 2000, the first time I met Steve was 2003. When I got back from boot camp. Steve hosted an event at max muscle. Um, and it was one of those stupid events that they used to throw where they pretend they give everything away free and they just rip everybody off. <laughs> Not my business model for the record. <laughs> um, but yeah, I met Steven moving forward. That's, uh, you know, if you know anything about Steven, what he's done for our military and as well as our law enforcement and firefighters and all that, um, he used to send me supplements over to Iraq, both deployments, as well as take care of a lot of guys I served with, uh, and get it to us exponentially faster than anybody else would and then give us a hell of a discount. Not that I'm promoting his business, but it's an excellent service. So, yeah. So I've known Ryan for a long time and uh, I, I just seen his wife through Facebook and her name's Darlene. If you haven't seen her, I mean, she's, she's gorgeous. I mean, absolutely gorgeous. Uh, and she's not a, a, he said like, she's, what'd you say about her? That she's, 
basically she's really fit. Like she is she's a physical so specimen, I think you called her. And she is, she looks really fit, but she's not like, she's still very feminine. Yep. And so I saw this Hispanic looking chick with her hat on, you know, pulled down, like nobody messed with me. Nobody talked to me. This chick's just pulling some 300 plus pound. I'm like, I walked up I'm like, you're Ryan Warner's wife, huh? Yes, and that's when I introduced myself. That was the first time I met Darlene. Is she was deadlifting? I, I swear to God, it had to be over three hundred pounds. I don't think I'm exaggerating. Um, she is, she is a phenom when it comes to picking up heavy weight. Yeah, no, and that's that's where I feel like I have a little bit of a, um, ability to have a conversation about this. And you know, down the future, you'd probably be uh, smart of you to have a female perspective when you start, you know, talk about some of these topics. But my wife and I have been in some deep conversations. You know, she's very adamant that for the majority of the part, a woman in a uh, male engagement, um, whether it be in a combat situation or training situation um, or an educational evolution that the military provides, can do the majority of things. But there is always something that the female can't do. Um, and that's to me where we, we really have to start looking back and pulling back what we expect um, with our feelings because the military is not made on feelings. I, I hate to say it for, for all of you that continue to be advocates for the military needs to be more emotional and personal and have feelings. Well, fuck your feelings, because I can assure you that the majority of uh, people that we are going to be engaged with across this world, um, especially under this administration, um, are, are going to care nothing about your feelings. Um, actually, that brings me to an interesting topic, because uh, my wife was actually just telling me, uh, that China has a directive to make their men more manly because, uh, you know, we now we have uh, that Styles dude, um, Henry Styles. I don't know. I don't know pop culture, but him and Candace Owens had a back and forth because he wore a dress and Candace Owens was like, dude, shouldn't wear dresses. <laughs> and, and she, you know, they laid hate on her for that. But, but yeah, I mean the physical, okay. So regardless of your feelings, there are biological differences between a male and a female. Now Ryan's a big dude. And most of you out there know me that listen. I'm um, not that cool yet. We're going to a bunch of listeners that don't know me. I'm a strong guy. I can pick up a lot of weight, deadlift 600 pounds, squat 500 pounds. I'm a big dude. I can tell you if Ryan was in full pack, so you what? You had your plate carrier on. You had ammo. That's another like 60 plus pounds on you. As being a machine gunner, um, we're carrying all of our weight with us where, you know, other weapons, MOSs like the Pac-Man trucks or, you know, you're a rifleman, you're carrying a couple magazines and, you know, your ruck. But as a machine gunner, you know, if you're carrying a, a 50 cal, that's a 60-pound receiver, a 25-pound barrel, a 43-pound tripod, and that's split amongst a team of three. And then you still got your personal gear, your ruck, your plate carrier, all of your ammunition. On a day-to-day -day basis, if you're a 200-pound man, you're walking around at, you know, 320 pounds, you know, it's sweating your ass off in 120-degree heat. So let's take Darlene, who is an exceptionally strong woman, and Darlene would almost be carrying her own body weight in gear, whereas Ryan is carrying 30% of his body weight in gear, 100% versus 30%. So even if I was a man carrying 100% of my weight in gear, it's going to change my performance, it's going to change what I can do. Well, now you're taking a woman who, again, biologically has less muscle, biologically has less testosterone, biologically has weaker bones. Um, we are physically strong. There's a reason why men historically have fought wars and it's only through, uh, advancements in technology that women have been able to jump in the, in, in the field of fighting. And, you know, if Ryan went down, I mean, I can ditch his machine gun, but Ryan would be a task for me. If I had to throw Ryan over my shoulder, I would be a task for me to carry Ryan's big ass out. Uh, a woman's not carrying Ryan out of battle injured. 
Well, that's where a lot of the conversation started to become more negative and not positive is when you start talking about uh, real life scenarios where somebody is required to uh, fulfill a Kazavak. Um, I think about all the times that we've had to drag men through the streets of Fallujah. We've had to pull them out of houses. We've had to pull them out of Humvees. Um, you know, as a 250 pound man carrying 120 pounds on me um, and then carrying another 200 pound man, that's a task. That's a task in itself. Yes. Do you get a release of endorphins that's going to allow you to perpetuate that mission? Absolutely. But you can't expect somebody that's half your size to be able to provide that same element. Um, and it's not just an emotional thing. I could sit here all day and say, absolutely, let's have every single woman who can pass the standard physical test join the military and be an infantryman. Absolutely. I can say that. But you can't reduce your standards like what we've seen across the board to allow that to occur. And that's where the frustration comes. And I can say this on behalf of my wife. My wife can do pull-ups. My wife can pass a basic physical examination that the Marine Corps would expect from a normal male to become an infantryman. What my wife will never tell you she can do is carry a 50 pound receiver with a 60 pound ruck with a 30 pound plate and go hike up 25 miles of mountain face. Like she's not going to do that and she won't pretend she can. But what my wife will always be an advocate of is, are there certain jobs that females can be good at, if not even better than men in the military? Absolutely. What we need to pull back on as a society is start getting back to some of the traditional ideologies of what our sexes do provide and don't provide. There's a lot of things that women can do significantly better than a man will ever be able to do. And there's a lot of things that men were created to do that women aren't supposed to do. Going back to the conversation of transgenders in the military, I think you'll see a lot less of men pretending to be women and joining. I think what you're going to see is men who feel that they're more like women and joining military ranks of female MOSs. And in my opinion, that's going to cause disruption because you are going to see, just like you see in sports, you're going to see the biological differences of a man who thinks he's a woman going to a woman battalion, platoon, squad, and become the face of that squad physically, mentally, performance-wise, because biologically there are significant differences. Um, and then you think of the adaptations that you have to provide logistically and operationally. I, I, I guess I have a hard time of understanding financially, society-wise, becoming the first to fight and providing a wartime element. What's the point of the small percentage of transgenders that there are in the U.S., number one, versus the U.S. that actually want to join the military? What, uh, this doesn't even seem like a topic of conversation to me that is relevant. One thing, one thing that we really didn't even touch on is the continued hormone therapy. That, a, that that yeah, we had the the military would be paying for that. But I mean, what if you're deployed? Like, a, you know, I did a podcast with the Nation Framers, and one of the gentlemen on there was another Marine combat veteran. He served in Afghanistan, and he said he lived in a mud hut for six months. You're gonna get your hormone treatments there. Well, when you're when you don't get your hormone treatments, when your hormones get thrown off, a lot of you out there who've had corrective hormone stuff. I, I have a lot of female clients in my in my real life work. Uh, that have hormone replacement therapy. I have a lot of men that I deal with that have hormone replacement therapy. If you can't get that, it throws your hormones out of whack. That's going to affect your energy, your mood, your mind, your mental clarity, everything. And so now you have somebody that's going to be handicapped because they can't get their normal hormonal treatments. I mean, we could we could go on this all day, but I think I think we have the, the gist of of that. And I just think that you know, I think we both agree that 
when you're trying to um, capitulate to a very small minority of people, uh, I think you're going to create bad policy. And the, the thing about this is that the policy, the way that the wokeism that the military is going towards is it's it's not going to cost them viewers like it costs the Super Bowl have their lowest ratings in a long time, lo lowest viewership in 2006 because they wanted to push their woke social justice message. This is going to cause people to dying. Going back to the Kurt Schlichter quote, you know, it's funny, quote, it's funny because Ryan actually texted me. I totally forgot about this until he reminded me when we were picking up Bracks from school. And he's like, dude, I texted you and I said, within the next two years, you're gonna, we're going to be in a war. And I, I checked the text. He said, within the next two years, we're going to be in a war and something bad is going to happen. Same thing Kurt Schlichter said, there is going to be a disastrous military defeat for the United States within the next few years by a serious government. We are headed to a point where if the world doesn't see us as the strongest military force in the world, it, there's no reason to fear us. Peace through strength, as the great communicator Ronald Reagan said, one of the great presidents in American history. And if we are not viewed as America's most badass fighting force, it's going to embolden the Chinese. It's going to embolden the Russians. It's going to embolden the Iranians. And it's going to embolden the North Koreans. And we are headed down a path that is very very dangerous for America. During World War II, many of you know the famous quote from a Japanese general, they did not invade mainland. They decided to attack Pearl Harbor. They did not invade mainland United States uh, in California because there would be a rifle behind every blade of, of grass. And to this day, that's definitely true. I mean, that we deterred a foreign invasion during World War II because of the Second Amendment, because of men being men and having rifles and there being a blade, or, or I'm sorry, a rifle behind every blade of grass. So that is something that we need to consider going forward is that what kind of danger are we putting, not just our military people, but mainland United States from foreign adversaries? This quote came to my head and I just had to look it up to make sure I say it right. Um, the Art of War, Sun Tzu, he once said, victorious warriors win first and then go to war, while defeated warriors go to war first and then seek to win. I feel that the mentality has been reversed over the last 10 years of our military profession and indoctrination of creating great war fighters. Um, as we, I can remember the words of hazing um, and indoctrination and uh, abuse start to come to fruition. And I think to my head, like the things that we did as instructors when I was an instructor and when I served uh, in the Marine Corps and infantry unit, were probably so flaccid compared to what the men and women who fought for us during Vietnam, who fought for us during World War II, who fought for us during World War I, the amount of pressure and resistance that they were taught mentally and physically to be able to handle is so significantly different than what we're teaching our young men and women these days. Um, if we are not training and creating a military at home that is tougher here than it would ever be needed to be in a different country, we will lose. And I think that goes back to the quote he said, we're eventually going to face a military force that has trained harder than we are and has put less social restrictions on their military than we continue to impede on ours. And it's going to show there it's, it's no different than, you know, a, a sports, a game. Uh, those who bleed in training bleed less in combat. Like it's, it's, it's no different. You, you put yourself to the, the iron, to the fire while you're here, because at the end of the day, you know, you can go home and you're safe. The last thing you ever want to do is be tested with something that you haven't experienced in a flight in a place that's unfamiliar. You know, that actually reminds me back in my MMA days, I trained with uh, some guys who now fight and this is not to put me on their level because I'm not, but I trained with uh, the likes of Mursad Bektich and Drew Dober. And one of the things that, uh, you know, we always said was, 
there's Ryan cracking another, uh, train hard, fight easy. Um, you know, beat each other's ass in training and make it hurt in training, go hard in training in Mursad. Damn. That kid did not have, if you guys have seen Mursad Bektich fight, that kid didn't have anything other than full throttle. Uh, 145 pound dude they got that hit would hit you like he's 200 pounds um and that i mean that's it i mean i think i just touched on what ryan said you know you you have to put yourself in a mental state in a physical condition um that's not going to be a surprise when the big game's on the line and in this case again the big game is lives it's not just american lives but it's also uh, american security mainland security and and what are we going to be running to in the coming years you know i i really fear what we're going to be coming up on which we all have seen for the last four years be deemed as white supremacists or uh, nationalists, which continues to baffle me. I can't imagine that there's only 75 million white people that voted for Trump this last election. So I guess if, if that if that's the way we're going, that there's an incredible amount of racist black and Hispanic and Asian and uh, probably even you know, some of your Muslim and Islamic Americans that realize that the conservative mentality of what Trump was attempting to do for our government and our country has some uh, added benefits of what we're seeing from our current administration. Okay, moving on to the next topic I want to discuss. Um, there seems to be a purge. There's actually a Democrat that's proposing legislation to prevent Trump supporters, basically anybody who's hashtag MAGA, um, has has questioned the uh, the sanctity of the vote of the 2020 elections from actually becoming a federal employee. And now we have a 60-day stand-down order from the Pentagon to root out white supremacists in the armed forces in the armed forces. So I just want to state that going into this, Ryan just informed me that the Marines are actually the most diverse branch of the military, Hispanics being the majority in uh in the Marine Corps. And if you know the history of Hispanic culture, they're fighting little bastards. Uh, some of the best boxers ever in the history of the world are, are Hispanics. Um, my, uh, my uncle's wife, his dad got citizenship because he fought in the Korean war. And my uncle has nothing but amazing things to say about that man in terms of, you know, just the amount of respect he has for what he been through. And it's, it's, it's interesting to hear my, uncle's wife talk about her appreciation and his appreciation for America going back to the colony of America um, with these immigrants that come over. Cause there's a lot of them are Hispanic immigrants, correct, Ryan? Yep. yep. So a lot of them are Hispanic immigrants actually earn their citizenship by, you know, they love the United States. They want to be part of the United States so much. They want to serve in the military. So I just want to get your perspective on the 60 day stand down order to root out white supremacists, how, how you feel about that, what you really think the underlying, um, mission is there for the Pentagon and for the woke left. And also, you know, just to be candid, how many, how many true racist or white supremacists did you run into in your time as a Marine? All right. So just kind of a caveat off that. I'm fortunate that I joined the branch I did because uh, if you do any research on the Marine Corps, they really don't give a fuck what color you are. At the end of the day, you're all green. That's just kind of how they say we all bleed the same blood and we all wear the same camis. Um, I've served with an incredible group of men and women that come from all different backgrounds, being a part of the Navy. If, if you do some research on the Navy, uh, one of their largest ethnic groups of active duty as well as commissioned officers are Filipino. Um, 
and you know, it's a it's a huge component of what makes the Navy and the Marine Corps so successful is because we are incredibly diverse. Um, I've worked with some of the most incredible black men and some of my mentors have been black men from the South and they're the most Southern country draw motherfuckers I've ever met. And, um, you know, they, uh, they take in this fat little white kid from Nebraska and treat him like he's one of his own. Um, when it comes to racism, it's hard for me to talk about this because I guess I just, I have a hard time of understanding what true racism is anymore because it's become such a dwindled down term that's used to basically describe anything that has to do with somebody's ethnicity or color in a any connotation that's not optimistic in fucking sprinkles and donuts and cupcakes and unicorns. I, uh, in my personal opinion, racism is wanting to hold somebody back from the same pursuit of life and liberty of happiness as myself based off of their color. And I have not experienced a lot of that. I'll be honest with you. In, in the Marine Corps, there there you know was one or two guys that you know did have some exponential racial uh, emotions and ac- actions. Um, and I'll be completely honest with you, they were ostracized. They were treated completely different. Um, they were weeded out. Um, they weren't given the same amount of uh, camaraderie and brotherhood that the rest of us were. And it was, uh, it got to a point to where basically the guys had to, you know, they left our unit. Um, when I was serving, uh, if you know anything about the Marine Corps Scout Sniper Platoon, they used to have these big flags that said SS on it. Um, and going through sniper school as a Marine is, you know, a, a massive accolade. Uh, Marine snipers are known to be one of the best across the military branches. Carlos and, Hathcock. Yeah, Carlos Hathcock. And, and to have that SS branded on you, uh, was powerful and, you know, <laughs> leave it to politicians to make that SS have relation to something outside of being proud to be a scout sniper in the U S Marine Corps. Um, so they banned the SS flag, um, because it was deemed as racist and keep in mind, there's Hispanic snipers, there's black snipers, there's white snipers, there's Asian snipers and, uh, something that was an accolade and given to as a memento of their, uh, graduation of a scout sniper school. And I've been stripped from them. So going back to my original statement, yes, has there been moments of racial tension or racial connotation from guys that I served with? Absolutely. I mean, we experience racism here in the U.S. as just civilians. Now, did we allow that behavior to continue? Absolutely not. And I think that's the difference of what they're trying to uh promote now with the 60-day stand down, 100% in my heart, I don't feel there's a need for racial divide or a racial purge in our military right now. I think what they're trying to do is find a way to remove or castrate basically Republican, conservative, Trump supporters. So we mentioned Carlos Hathcock in there, um, a legendary Marine sniper from the uh, Vietnam War. I'm, I'm, I love war history. I love American history. So I just want to touch on this. This dude was a certified badass. He actually had 93 uh, confirmed kills in Vietnam. One of his most famous ones we'll touch on. Um, but uh, he... Uh, uh, he was actually there was a a bounty a thirty thousand dollar bounty on his head 
from the Viet Cong because he was such a menace to them in one of his most famous, I believe it was a, I'm trying, I was trying to find it, but I couldn't find it. I think it was a, it was a general or a high ranking Viet Cong uh, military member, but he hid out in this field for shit, a couple days, waited for the perfect shot, took the shot, got the kill and snuck out. I mean, truly is a legend. Um, he has since passed away. But uh, Carlos Hathcock is a legendary Marine sniper. And this goes back to, I mean, a scout sniper, SS. So obviously they take that back to, you know, white supremacy. But um, World War II, the Nazis had the SS, which was their elite division of super Nazis. But it's a damn acronym. And it well, can, it's a sense of pride. I mean, it was a sense of pride. Look what America did to what was supposed to be one of the greatest fighting forces this world ever known when it comes to Hitler and his Nazi regime. I mean, we eliminated them without realistically breaking a sweat we take what they were so proud of and we make it something of our own and we contribute that to all nationalities underneath this american flag that's the beautiful thing about america is what is our race we're not a, i mean we're a culture we're we're a, we're a country that still has an identity that is yet to be truly determined because we are the greatest commuters of every other country to come to one place and decide this is where we are expecting to receive the glory that God has made this land to be. Like we have every single We are the only country I can think of that I visited that I can walk down the street and see every different shade of person. You know, I, I, when I visited Germany, majority people with light, fair skin. Um, when I went to Ireland, everybody light, fair skin. <laughs> I go to Iraq, everybody looks the same. Yep. I go to Mexico, there's not fucking white people walking down the streets of Mexico. It's all Mexicans and, you know, his, Hispanic cultures and darker skin and darker. Like you walk down the streets of Lincoln and literally you see Asians, you see uh, Muslims, you see freaking white people, you see black people, you see Hispanic people. Yet we continue to push this narrative that we're the most atrocious, racist country that this world's ever seen. And it's, it's absolutely insane. I always find it ironic that the majority of immigrants that want to come here are from predominantly brown countries that um, America is so bad that all these brown people want to rush here to be part to be part of the most racist country ever. I always find that interesting. Uh, I want to move on because we talked about this in the introduction, but I, I want to talk about this more because you brought up Trump and what he was trying to do. You know, uh, Trump was really... It was Trump versus the media. When Trump said that the media is the enemy of the people, he's absolutely correct. And uh, look no further than the headlines that we see today where Trump is constantly villainized or anything that could have to be anything that's kind of maybe pro-Trump. For example, the Bucks winning the Super Bowl is not even pro-Trump. But look at the headlines from people celebrating that from versus when they celebrated Biden winning the election. Um, the headlines are completely different. It's terrible that they're out there maskless celebrating Tom Brady. That's racist that Tom Brady won. He's so racist because he's Tom Brady and didn't wear a mask versus the headlines. There was jubilee in the streets when Biden won the presidency. I mean, the headlines are a joke. But what I want to talk about is Puerto Rico because when Puerto Rico was devastated by a hurricane, the media coverage was similar to uh, the communist virus is what Trump was doing wrong. Trump's not doing enough. Trump is failing us. Well, Ryan was there with Team Rubicon, and uh, Ryan has some more insight into what actually was going on on the ground and what they had to do and what he did do. So I'm going to throw the mic back to him, and he's going to talk about his time with Team Rubicon uh, with hurricane relief efforts in Puerto Rico. People died. 
people died because of starvation. People died because of lack of resources. People died because they didn't have water. The human body can't survive three to four days without water. And there's millions of bottles of water found that the U.S. government, utilizing military and other resources, got to Puerto Rico. And their establishment refused to put that out to the people, humans. Humans that, as an American society, we are responsible to take care of, regardless of who they are, what they are, where they're from. Are they a part of our country? They're not a part of our country. It doesn't even matter. That It's just insane to me that it's appropriate for people to allow this behavior to continue to move forward without bringing the facts to the surface and say, regardless of what state, city, country, town, continent, I don't give a shit. There was the ability to save human lives, and it was so imperative to continue to slander his name that that was more important than a human life. What Steve just said is factual. There, what Tulsi said on the Joe Rogan show sparked something in me, and it, it almost hurts as an American citizen because you think of what, going back to my, we are a melting pot. There is people in powerful positions that would rather. Okay, after a small break, Ryan just corrected me. This is actually really cool and insightful. He was with Rubicon in Houston, Texas. I mistake that. He it was he was a DOD contractor in Puerto Rico. So this is a whole different level of some operations that he had to run in Puerto Rico. So he was contracted, Department of Defense. He was a contractor in Puerto Rico. Now I'm going to pass the mic to Ryan and let him drop some knowledge bombs that you can share with your liberal friends about how Trump, quote unquote, handled the Puerto Rican disaster. So Puerto Rico was fucked up. We'll just start there. Um, that was obviously Mother Nature had some hate in her blood. It might have been, you know, her time of the month, but she absolutely destroyed that uh, little island. Um, when I flew in, you know, the, the airport was absolutely demolished. Um, we came in on a little, basically a little Cessna off the keys and uh, landed in all but one little building of their airport was devastated and they had built plywood shelters because everybody that had survived the hurricane had went to the airport in hopes to get to Dominican Republic or back to the U.S. and was living inside of these plywood buildings that they had manufactured on the tarmac of the Puerto Rican airport. Um, day one, so we go down there. Our original mission is we're basically just uh, PSD, which is a private security detail for um, a bunch of big businesses that the U.S. had influence to come out here to, one, uh, revamp the electrical um, grid for Puerto Rico because if you do any research, it's operating off something that's archaic. Um, it's it's one of the biggest downfalls of living in Puerto Rico, and it's how the government actually abuses its citizens. Um, if you if you spend a little time on Google, you'll see that the average electrical bill in Puerto Rico is about four hundred and fifty dollars, which equals about uh, fifty to sixty percent of the average monthly income of a Puerto Rican worker. Um, and the reason they do that is because the government actually owns the electrical grid. So they are taxing on top of the use. They are also taxing it to get the money to obviously live the lifestyle that they live. Wait, are you, are you suggesting that the private sector perhaps would run something more efficiently, more fairly than the government, Ryan? Absolutely. I, I think that's what he just suggested. That's weird because... We have a large swath of potato brains that actually want the government to take over our health care, 
but it turns out the government can't even run a simple electrical grid in a tiny, I mean, really in a tiny area. When you're talking about- It's an island. Yeah, it's a small island. Yeah, I mean, uh, Representative Hank Johnson thought that you Marines were gonna tip it over at one point. Who <laughs> <laughs> was that Puerto Rico? Was that Guam? I, there was an island, remember Hank Johnson? Yeah, uh, throw that one on YouTube. Hank, Hank Johnson is afraid there's too many Marines on an island. It's gonna, it's gonna sink and it's gonna capsize. I think the island's gonna capsize. So yeah, I just wanna point out, it turns out the government sucks at everything they do outside of, well, running. I was gonna say running the military, but they're starting to fail there too, apparently. But uh, back to Ryan. Oh, the government's great at taxing. That's what that's what they're good at. Um, yes. Yeah, so the Puerto Rican government controls the electrical grid for the entire island. Um, it's not like what we experience here in the U.S. with our privilege. Um, they experience a little bit different there. In fact, just for an example, Elon Musk actually came out there and stated that their shattered electrical infrastructure could be completely restored on the island and store enough electricity for three days without any sun. So anytime there was uh, another natural disaster, that they would have enough power for the entire island based off of just solar panels that he was more than willing to provide. But guess who said no to that? The Puerto Rican government. Wonder why. Why would they want to have a sustainable energy source on a beautiful Caribbean island that could utilize some of the best features that Mother Nature has instead of taxing their citizens nearly to death every single month just to have lights and TV. I thought liberals love solar panels. Obviously not these ones. These, <laughs> these are different ones. These are the same ones that uh, as our military and our FEMA resources continue to ship over ready-made meals, MREs, um, they're called humanitarian rations. They're a little different post out, you know, outside of a combat zone. They're humanitarian rations and they're actually fairly good. They're significantly better than the shit we ate when I was in. Um, and millions and millions and millions of water bottles, hundreds of thousands of generators, um, fuel cans. Um, Home Depot was, I forget this, the owner of Home Depot, but he was actually a, a massive, massive uh, donator to the Puerto Rican uh, devastation. And one of the things that we were required to do was actually guard um, the fuel trucks that were moving from the allocation that the U.S. brought over on naval ships. They'd come to the port, and then we would move the fuel and guard the fuel trucks as they went to gas stations. Because if you think about an island, you know they don't have any natural resources. Everything that goes to an island is being shipped in. And for the first two and a half weeks, literally the country stopped because nobody had any gas. The gas stations were completely empty. Um, and you think about the few things that as Americans that we need to continue to live our really, really, really easy life. It's water, it's food, it's electricity, and it's gas. You take away one of those four things and more than likely there's going to start to be a dwindle of uh, social norms and people's behavior. Um, and when you're already in a country or a annex or whatever the fuck you even want to call Puerto Rico these days, soon to be our 52nd state, if it's anything have to do with this new administration, um, you know, they're, they already kind of live on the edge. You know, they live below the poverty line. Um, they have an incredible climate, but their government continues to negate utilizing its natural resources. And we watched it all. I, uh, I remember going to the port 
and literally seeing those those trash cans that you see at construction sites, uh, like the rollaway ones, you know what I'm talking about? Full of water, full of MREs, full of the humanitarian rations, full of empty gas cans that could be utilized to fill up gas and then allow somebody to walk back to their house and fuel a generator because the electricity grid was absolutely devastated. And they sat there on the port for weeks and weeks. And watching the news, as I'm out there, they continued to put this on the Trump administration, how he failed to uh, provide enough resources because of his racist sentiment against Puerto Rico, because obviously they're brown folks because he didn't want to help them. Duh. Um, <laughs> it, it goes, here's the perfect uh, little example. We're driving through uh, the resort center, the main, basically, I don't remember the streets out there. And I could, if you, if you want to comment on this, I'll spend two seconds Googling it. Um, but where all the hotels are at in Puerto Rico on the, the big, beautiful beach there that you know, all your celebrities and entertainers would travel to. Anderson Cooper was doing a interview there and we were driving by and he was standing in a puddle of water that was about 16 inches deep as his film crew was standing on an elevated position to make it look like he was standing in this deep water talking about how bad Puerto Rico was right now. Meanwhile, if you were to look to the right, you see a lot of the local citizens, as well as a lot of the people that were stuck out there that were on vacation that had to be forced to stay there for the time being, were going amongst their daily business like there was nothing wrong. The resorts really never stopped working. Um, they still had their big buffets. They still had their casinos open or whatever it is they have there. They still had their clubs open. They still had their bars and restaurants open. Now, did they you know, obviously have some damage from the hurricane. Absolutely. But sitting back and watching how America was publicizing Puerto Rico as being this absolute atrocity and that Trump just basically wiped his hands free of anything blows my mind because there was millions of gallons of fuel delivered. There was hundreds of thousands of generators donated. There was an immense amount of FEMA as well as military personnel that were allocated to the island to support. And I, I it, it honestly hurts. It, it, it hurt to watch it because as you see, you wake up and you go to work that day or that night and you are watching a security truck deliver fuel to a local populace. And you see how happy everybody is that the fuel truck shows up, they fill up their gas cans you know, we had 25, 30 generators that Home Depot generated every time we made a stop and we'd give them to the local community. And then you watch the news and you have media outlets like CNN talking about how the U.S. did absolutely nothing for Puerto Rico. And I think to my head, I'm, we have anybody and everybody that works in most of your DOD facilities, your FEMA facilities, um, and even some of your military personnel from the National Guard that are deployed there. And sleeping on the ground, literally, we slept. I mean, there was between us, uh, this is fucking weird. There was a Scientology group out there. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah, weird. Um, FEMA and a couple other organizations. There's probably about 150 of, 50 of us that slept behind this Home Depot in Bayamon, which is this extremely uh, urban neighborhood, to say it politically correct, um, inland of Puerto Rico. And we slept on uh, basically pallets of shingles for about the first six weeks we were out there. Um, and 
all we did every single day was try to fix that country, even though its mayor and its governor refused to do actively working against. Active, I mean, literally every time I watched the news, it was like the U.S. isn't doing this, the U.S. isn't doing that. President Trump refuses to do this. You know, we were still waiting for water and food. Meanwhile, you go to the port, and the reason that some of the stuff didn't get supplied is because I, I want to quote this accurately. I mean, if I'm wrong, tell me. I want to say that it was noted that 35 to 40 percent of the workforce of Puerto Rico left Puerto Rico and went to the Dominican Republic, and there wasn't enough people to actually move some of the supplies from the port across the island, which made the DOD contractors, which made FEMA, which made the National Guard, which made all the other private sector companies have to work literally double because Puerto Rico's own workforce left the island because they had nothing left. They lost their homes. They lost electricity. They had no means to support themselves. Why would they stay in an island that was absolutely devastated when they could take a ferry for an hour and 40 minutes and go right over the Dominican Republic and reestablish themselves? You know, it's funny you mentioned that because I remember something coming out and I can't remember who broke it first. Gateway Pundit was big, but I must be clear, Puerto Rico is run by Democrats. Um, here's the headline. Corrupt Democrats, Puerto Rico disaster relief supplies found in hidden warehouse. So uh, Trump said that they they were mishandling this. Trump said that actually he suggested they were hiding water. And uh, I'm just going to read an excerpt from this um, Gateway Pundit piece. A hidden warehouse in Puerto Rico was discovered containing massive amounts of disaster relief aid sent by the United States between 2017 and 2018 as part of the effort to assist the victims of Hurricane Maria. The survival aid, which included water and medicine, was hidden and unused for nearly two years to make President Trump look bad until the recent earthquakes in Puerto Rico prompted investigators to look into structural damages. President Trump has been very critical of the corrupt Democrat Party officials that run the island government in Puerto Rico. You have incompetent, totally grossly incompetent leadership. This is a quote from Trump. Leadership at the top of Puerto Rico, said President Trump in July 2009. The people of Puerto Rico are great. The people of Puerto Rico like me. They should They should because nobody's given them what I, what I, what I give them. There's Trump being Trump. But the leadership is corrupt and incompetent. So, yeah, I mean, it's not – this is not conjecture. This is – I mean, this was – Ryan's client. I remember Ryan telling me this years ago about how they had to do like secret supply runs. Um, and this was, this is now substantiated. This story broke Feb, uh, January 22nd, 2020. Um, so it's, it's, it's not, this is not conjecture. This is not just Ryan's opinion. This was Ryan's experience on the ground. This is fact. This isn't, uh, you know, how liberals try to chant. This is my truth. This isn't Ryan's truth. This is the truth of what he witnessed on the ground. And it was uh, broken uh, early 2020 that they in fact did hide millions of water bottles. We're talking millions of water bottles. So um, yeah, I mean, there's not really much else, much else left for me to say about that. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's it's, it's really insightful to understand the powers that were working against Trump. It was the media. It was even government officials. You know, actually, Tulsi Gabbard was just on Joe Rogan, and she even said that there was Democrats that did not want the First Step Act to pass because they knew it would help black people, and they didn't want Trump to have that feather in his hat. Because, and this is coming from Tulsi Gabbard, a Democrat. She was a Democrat nominee for president, and she has some really terrible socialist economic ideas, but credit to Tulsi Gabbard because she's really come out with some hard-hitting facts exposing her own party. 
she actually said, I'm going to repeat it. I know Democrats that did, of Democrats in office, federal congressmen, House representatives, Senate rep, rep, uh, Senate uh, senators that did not want the First Step Act to pass because they knew it would help black people. Put that into perspective. These people didn't want something to pass that would help black people so they could use it against Trump. This is what we're dealing with on the left. We are not dealing with sane individuals. I've said this for a long time. The time to pick a side is over. If you haven't yet, you don't have very much longer. You need to pick a side. One side is completely insane. The ends will always justify the means. They will sacrifice you, your kids, your grandma, your grandpa, your dog, your cat, your goldfish. If it means they get more political power, they don't give a shit about the well-being of the American people. All they care about is acquiring power by any means necessary. Steve's passion is fire. Fire. I'm over here. I got goosebumps and shit. I think I'm a sweat. I just ran a marathon of emotions. Um, no, but he's absolutely right. I mean, you think about the millions of water bottles that were found locked up inside of a storage unit just in an attempt to slander Trump's name and his responsibility to taking care of Puerto Rico. I'd rather not see somebody be okay and live the life of freedom that we continue to push because of their political agenda. To me, that's almost disturbing. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a mental illness. And if we don't find a way to get those people out of their places, you're only going to see it continue to get worse. You have Tulsi Gabbard, who is a Democrat, who has some conservative ideologies, but also very socialist and liberal ideologies, but she's a patriot. At the end of the day, she's going to stand up for human rights. She's going to stand up for military support. She's going to stand up for America still being the best country this world has ever known. And we are young and we have a lot of scars that need to be addressed. And we have a lot of wounds that still need to heal. I mean, we've been a country for less than 300 years. How do you expect that to be perfect? But when you're starting to see people from the other side of the aisle transition to the middle and even transition to the conservative side and the Republican party, it's because they're seeing the sickness that is starting to embed themselves inside of the DNC. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned the transition of people because I, I said on my last podcast, there was a great uh, YouTube video uh, with Vice is the, sub the subscription handle. And it was black conservatives debating black liberals. And one thing that I've noticed is you never see stories of black conservatives or black or Hispanic conservatives becoming liberal. You only see the opposite of them getting woke to the conservative movement. So you have, uh, you know, Candace Owens uh, started this Blexit, which was the black exit from the Democrat party, you know, freeing their minds from the Democrat plantation. And, and you don't see that in the reverse. Again, you don't see black conservatives and Hispanic conservatives being like, whoa, what am I doing? These people are racist. They hate us. I'm going to go and be a liberal. You don't see it. You only see the opposite. You only see people that were raised Democrat or were liberals, uh, 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 Rob Smith, for example, black gay conservative veteran voted, didn't vote for Trump in 2016, voted for Obama both times is now was now an avid Trump supporter going into 2020 and a staunch conservative. Um, he's a great conservative voice. I'm not even going to label it anything else. I'm not going to label him gay. I'm not going to label him. I said those things just so you understand 
the diversity of, of thought that he may have and his different perspective, but he is just a good conservative voice. It happens to be a black voice. It happens to be a voice of a gay man. It happens to be a voice of a military veteran. Um, but you know, that's, that's, you touched on something else, Ryan. And I want to carry right over into that, into your service with actually with team Rubicon in Houston and, you know, talking about America and how it is the greatest country in the world. There is no other country that comes together for its own more than America. You know, I remember in Nebraska years ago now when Hallam, a small town here in Nebraska, was devastated by a tornado. People from all over went and helped. Anytime the floods, yes, the floods just a couple of years ago. Rubicon was out here for that as well. So when something happens in America, it is you snap your fingers and you have hordes, hundreds, thousands of people, not just donating their, their money and their resources, but donating their time to help people. Ryan is one of those dudes. So, uh, you know, think about that. There's no other country in the world that is as charitable as the United States that takes care of its own, like the United States does. And if we're so terrible, how can we have such a melting pot of these people, white people, brown people, insert other color here, people, you know, no matter who's in trouble, they're out there. You know, one of my favorite pictures I saw, uh, I think it was actually from Houston. It was a white dude carrying a black chick who was carrying her baby out of flood water. And that shit just gives you the chills. That dude didn't give a shit that she was black. And it was in Texas. I would bet that he's a gun toting conservative. She didn't care that it was a white man pulling her out of the water. She knew that a fucking hero was picking her up out of floodwaters and carrying her and her baby to safety because they're humans. They're Americans. And America always stands for America more than any other country stands for itself. Americans back Americans. So I'm going to let Ryan carry over into talking about Houston and the hurricane relief efforts there. All right. Team Rubicon, Houston hurricane relief efforts. So Team Rubicon, uh, a great thing that our country continues to show that we, I mean, you have Americans that just decide to create this nonprofit organization to take care of people during natural disasters. Um, Jacob Wood, the CEO of Team Rubicon, I actually served with in 2-7. Um, good man, you know, continues to push the needle when it comes to what we can do as a community when people are suffering. Hurricane hit Houston, and it's the worst thing that our country's experienced since the New Orleans hurricanes. Um, go down there, the about 12 hours after the hurricane dissipated and Houston was completely flooded. Took me about 16 hours to drive down there and the last four and a half, five hours down the 40, I was probably in 10 to 12 inches of water. I mean, there was cars strung out all over the road. It was one of the most humbling things I've ever seen because as I continue to get closer to downtown, um, you could see that the water was literally the first floor of most of the apartment and businesses that you would see if you were walking downtown Houston was, you know, water embedded. You, you couldn't even enter most of the doors. People were getting around in Zodiacs and I don't know what all them Southern guys, those big fan boats, like the platform boats that have the big fans on the back. I don't even know what they're called. Um, Is this 2017, sorry, 2017, Hurricane Harvey? Yes, Hurricane Harvey. Yep, 2017. Um, so get down there. Um, 
establish a you know little point to work out of we're sleeping on the roof of an apartment complex that's right next to the convention center in downtown houston right by the little port right there the crazy thing is and this just reiterating how shitty even local governments are at establishing and handling situations this convention center which uh, i believe could probably hold maybe five six seven thousand people at that point was housing about 15 to 20,000 people um, that had lost, been displaced from their homes due to the flood. And everybody was there. They only had about 30 porta potties uh, set up behind the convention center. And it was so, like, literally people were shitting on the streets. They were, uh, you had, I was. It was like every day in San Francisco. Yeah, every day in San Francisco. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But you know, sitting on top of this apartment building and looking down as the water continues to kind of remove itself and go back down uh, into the port area, um, you 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 see such uh, a life changing experience of watching ten to fifteen thousand people standing outside as well as facilitating themselves inside, trying to sleep, being gathered inside of one place, waiting for FEMA to show up. FEMA hadn't established herself yet. There was no water. There was no food. There was no supplies. And what does uh, the human nature uh, enact us to do when we are missing certain things? And people started to loot. People started to vandalize. People started to break into businesses. Um, And I like to use the word that we're all entrepreneurs. And if we're given the opportunity, uh, just like the riots we witnessed this summer, (laughs) we're going to take advantage of any opportunity that presents itself. We're Americans. Mostly Mostly peaceful protesting occurred. Um, so, you know, we're, we're housing on top of this apartment complex, um, and trying to establish exactly what's going to go on working with a few different entities down there. Um, and really it was just kind of a reconnaissance mission. There was nothing else at that point because there was still enough flooding where it deterred people to try to vandalize and loot yet. But as the hours progressed and the water started to subside, you, the criminal activity obviously would start to increase. But for the first two and a half days. It was literally reconnaissance. Um, and we made it as far down all the way to Beaumont. Um, and all the oil fields, fields are down there. It's an old air force base. Uh, you know, they live in one bedroom shanties with basically, you know, it looks like a trailer park almost like there's older homes and it's a military base housing. And I remember going down there on one of those airboats and you would literally, there's people sitting on top of their roof because they're just waiting for somebody to come pick them up. And, when I think about racism in the U S I think about there was every single type of person you could think of. And all they cared about was helping each other at that moment in time. And there's always that cliche argument of, Oh, we come together when it's needed. You know, we were the, the melting pot. And at the time of need, we all look after each other. I don't think that's just at the time of need. I think it's innate in us to where, regardless of the color of your skin, the human nature is to save another human's life. If you're not viciously or maliciously trying to enact harm onto me, I want to make sure that you're okay as well. And I experienced that. It's the most uh, humbling thing I've ever seen to watch men and women put themselves in a non-combat environment but yet still be willing to risk their life to save the life for somebody else. Maybe a combat mentality. It, 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 I mean, men and women that have, they are not in the military. They've never served. They volunteered to come help out and they didn't even know what they were signing up for, literally. But it was 
all we knew is how bad New Orleans was and the post data that came out about how shitty the U.S. handled New Orleans with its hurricane. The last thing we want to do as a country is allow that to be an example of who we are as people. And I think Houston embodied that American prosperity right there. Like they took themselves as well as every other neighboring city, as well as Nebraska and South Dakota and New York and Florida and California. I mean, people were literally driving in from all over the U.S. to go help this one little city that was devastated for 96 hours. And it, it, you can't even, some of the pictures I have and the videos, you can't even, like, if they made a movie of it, you can't replicate it because the emotion that's involved with watching somebody jump into the water but the water is a flood and they're swimming to the top of a house to grab a mom and her child, give them life jackets, give them a rope, and then let them be pulled back into the Zodiac is absolutely insane. Like you can't replicate that emotion regardless of how hard Hollywood tried. That's awesome. And thank you for the insight. You know, that just goes again to the American spirit about how, you know, people are coddled and they act like they're oppressed but you have situations like this where you have people from all over, um, probably mostly right-leaning people going to help, but I'm sure there were some liberals in there that were <laughs> lending a helping hand. I'm just kidding. Uh, but but there, was, there were some bad apples out there too. Yeah, yeah, there yeah, yeah. Uh, but no, just I, as Ryan was describing that, I had this pulled up. Uh, and, you know, there was upwards of, according to radar estimates, but uh, cannot be confirmed, there was upwards of 70 inches. So... I mean, yeah, if those of you who know me, I'm, I'm not very tall. I, I, if I was standing and then again, that's at, from sea level. So if I was standing at sea level, there would be water over my head. Um, now you talk about if they're below sea level, that's where you get water up to these roofs. And I remember seeing those, those dramatic videos where there are people literally on their roofs and they, they look like they have about five feet on each side before the water is going to come in and sweep them up. And that was a, that, and to, to be clear, how America came together at that point, that was uh, the record, a worldwide record in terms of damage, $125 billion in damage, making Harvey the, co- the costliest tropical cyclone worldwide. Uh, over 300,000 structures were flooded along with over 500,000 vehicles. There was 30,000 water rescues that were conducted. 40,000 people were evacuated from flooding. So put that into perspective. There was 30,000 daring rescues of people in floodwaters. And maybe only 20% of those were really grave, uh, dangerous situations, whatever. That's still thousands. Like That's still incredible to see what America does. So don't let anybody tell you that America is inherently racist or institutionally racist, which is always hilarious to me. As Michael Knowles points out, if liberals run education, liberals run Hollywood, liberals run every major institution, the media, if America is institutionally racist, uh, whose fault is it? That's one of my favorite Michael Knowles quotes. Um, But America isn't inherently racist. America is inherently good. Americans are inherently good. Um, There's not a country that reaches out to help one another more than America. All right, the final segment before we wrap it up with some fast fire questions for Ryan. Uh, let's talk where we're at now in the path forward. You know, as you said a little bit ago, I've been on this rhino kick because I said from the get go, uh, the way that we start to turn this country around, it's not done in one. It's not done in one election cycle. It is done over time. We got to clean house. We got to get rid of rhinos. We got to get rid of the Mitt Romneys. We got to stop voting for the Ben Sass types. And if that's what the Republican Party wants to give us, you sit 
spit that shit out. You don't vote for those people. I'm done voting for the people that continue to tax us to send send money to Pakistan and teach them the difference between genders and how you should respect women. Um, I'm done with that. I'm done with voting for these people. But I think that's a that's a long term battle. I think that you know the America that we want to see, at least people on our side that we want to see, it's not going to be for us. We're going to be so old by the time it happens. It's going to be for our kids. And for me, that's what you know, sparks my fight and sparks my fire is the love I have for my boys. And Ryan has two daughters and a son. Uh, and, and I know that's, you know, that's what like, I know those were very transformative uh, things in his life in terms of some of his perspectives and outlooks on life. Um, but one thing I've always said is conservatives have been too damn comfortable. And this is why we've let the left erode our culture and our country away because conservatives are always angry and they'll go on TV and they'll do good little hits on the cable and, you know, they'll post on social media, I'm ready for war. I'm ready to fight. You don't know what war is. I should, I don't know what war is. But I'll tell you, I have been in a cage with another man who wanted to knock me out. And I've done that, I don't know, 14 or so times. And I've been in plenty of fights in my life. Worked at a, a little bit rougher bar downtown where I've been in plenty of fights. I've been in funny, plenty of physical altercations where that fight or flight kicks in. No, I have not been in combat. No, I have not served. But it's it's a different feeling when you talk tough versus when you actually have to put fists to the pavement and, and actually get in physical confrontation. I will say the majority of people that are calling for physical confrontation probably have never been in physical confrontation. And that always makes me laugh when you see these Antifa beta males uh, on TV acting tough. They're, they're generally weak men. Um, there's a reason why they wear skinny jeans. Uh, they have less muscle mass than our wives. I, I don't think that the majority of America is ready for the potential of a violent future that we might have in the coming years. Uh, I don't think America is willing to do that. I don't think most people are willing to on both sides too. I think less on the left than on the right. I think there's more people on the right that would be willing to fight. Let's pray to God that our country doesn't descend into chaos and we actually have armed conflict amongst each other. I have said that I think Antifa, I, I, I forecast this, Antifa would continue well. Antifa's riding in the streets in D.C. just the other day. With the 5,000 military, at least 5,000 military people still there, Antifa is still rioting. We're not hearing about that, though. You're not. You're, they're not talking about that in the media. They're not talking about the violent insurrectionists in D.C. on on, on January 6th with their MAGA flags and their flagpoles. Uh, exactly, right? The, the beast is never fed. I've said this. The beast will never be fed. They will always move the goalposts is what the left does. Um, but one thing I will point out, and, and I think this is a very important number, uh, there's at least 75 million Trump voters, assuming that there was no switching, if you know what I mean. I can't say it because I actually had a couple uh, uh, podcasts pulled off of Apple. Um, I'm not going to say why because I don't want this one to get pulled off too because I think we have too great a material in here with Ryan. Uh, but there was at least 75 million Trump voters, and they call them the three percenters for a reason. Um, 3% of 75 million, if you're assuming that, that there's 3% of the 75 million that are actually serious and will go to battle, that's 2.25 million people. That's, yeah, that's the size of our army. And there's going to be some crossover. There's going to be some overlap because some of those people are going to be army, uh, military people. Um, but there, there's enough people that are pissed off enough. If you want to come down our street with Molotov cocktails, and try to throw that at our homes where our kids live and where we feed our families, you are going to be met with a massive level of resistance and it, it's not going to be pretty. It's going to be a really scary state. And it's not just going to be scary for what Americans are going to potentially do to Americans. 
it's the outs our outside enemies will go straight to red alert. They will go straight on standby because that will be the time where they could really take advantage of us. And that could be the military atrocity that we see in the coming years. Um, we, you know, would China have the balls for a mainland invasion on the California coast? They know they can walk right through most of SoCal right now. You know, you, the farther north you get, the more conservative you get, you're going to be met with some rifles. But uh, will that embolden Russia? You know, I've always said, I don't think we'll ever get in a physical war with those two countries because it'd be too costly. But proxy, I mean, could they prop up the North Koreans for some sort of half-ass, you know? Korea, yeah, and Russia will use Iran, Iran, Chechnya, yeah, uh, ISIS fighters that are still kind of running rampant. ISIS, yeah, they, they'll never do it directly. Yeah, but all it takes is a small cell and embed itself, and it becomes big cancer. Yep, and then you get, you know, the people that are in this country. I've been in this country for a long time that have been actively working against the country. I mean, if you look up the Muslim Brotherhood's plan that the FBI discovered in the '90s, their plan to take over the United States was through massive immigration. This is not conspiracy theory. This is not my opinion. You can look it up. The FBI actually did get the Muslim Brotherhood documents. They want to take over America by means of immigration and then procreation. Um, you know, most of those, most of the Muslim culture, they produce like four or five kids per couple, whereas America is under two. We don't even have enough to sustain that population. So who knows what could happen when you have, you know, maybe 15 to 25% um, of people are extremists and willing to do extremist things. Well, 15 to 25% of a big number is a big number. Um, so that's, you know, something that I want to have Ryan's opinion on is where he thinks we're headed, you know, the potential for, it's hard to say civil conflict because I don't, I don't think we'll see a full scale war, but I mean, I'll, I'll let him give us him on that. I mean, I, I always just call it uh, civil conflict or small scale uh, skirmishes where you have the Portland Antifa types, what we've seen in Denver and DC when they decide to go to these middle-class neighborhoods. And when they decide to go to middle-class neighborhoods is when they're going to see the power of, I think the conservative American spirit, but also I think we'll be surprised by, I've always said your neighbor that will be absolutely willing to load you into a boxcar. Um, you know, your neighbor that talks tough, and I'm not speaking of any of my neighbors, just to be clear, I, I have great neighbors. Um, but, uh, I mean, your, your, your person on Facebook that talks really tough, be the first one to rat you out uh, or the first one to load you on that boxcar or the first one to capitulate and switch sides because they want to avoid the fight. Um, you know, historically speaking, there's a very small number of people that are willing to put themselves in harm's way in physical confrontation for their beliefs. And that is one thing you have to give. I mean, you look at the his history of war, Japanese fighters in World War II are some ruthless sons of bitches. I mean, if their plane was going down, they coined the term kamikaze. They flew that shit right into our ships. It, they didn't surrender. I mean, I think the, I read I read not too long ago the, the last Japanese soldier surrendered like 40 years after the war. Yeah. And he refused to believe the propaganda. And that dude was a badass. He stayed hidden in the hills and in the holes that they had dug and the caves they had. So I'm going to let Ryan talk about what he feels like is the potential for civil conflict and what he feels like you know, uh, would be the fighting spirit of the internet badasses. Ton of talking points. First, this conversation even I feel needs to be had just for my own personal roadmap of beliefs over the last six, seven months. I've been a huge advocate of Donald Trump and his administration. I love some of the things that he's emphasized when it comes to, uh, what it truly means to be a free society as well as a patriot and putting America first. 
I censored myself because of the amount of uh, backlash that I received from family and I, don't, I guess you don't even call them friends. I, it's just more of a social media acquaintances. Um, and it, you know, it, I thought to myself, why am I censoring my voice when their voice is being pushed to be profound? I kind of took a step back and evaluated my stance. And I realized that I'm going to stand up for my values. I am going to stand up for the things I believe. I am going to fight, rather it be verbally and hopefully never physically. Um for the things that I hope that my kids get to experience that I had, I got to experience when I was younger. We are going down a road of uh, societal degradation that's kind of frightening. Uh, if you take a step back and you remove just your uh, political affiliation and you look at some of the things that have transpired over the last 45 days from this new administration and you just put yourself into a place Am I really being a part of what's making America the safest, most successful, more free than it was before agenda, or am I following what I'm being told to follow? And that's scary to me because we are now once again bowing down to the same people that for the last four years we've gained back some of our freedoms from. Um, and I don't want to go into that in too in depth because I think that could probably be conversation for a whole nother economic slash political slash uh, risk game, you could say, for the, the world. Um, but stand up for what you believe in. If, if, if you have a passion, if you have future goals for your, your children, for your spouse, for yourself, for your grandchildren, when you're making some of these social media posts and you're following some of these things that are going on in our current society, before you continue to regurgitate the baloney that they're feeding you, take a second to think what that action today influences eight to 12 years from now. Take it, you know, I feel that we're such an impulsive society these days that we forget that the things that are occurring right now have some serious, serious implications of our national security as well as our, our national profitability and our economic spectrum over the next four, eight, 12 years. And it seems to be lost in translation because going back to some of the topics we've talked about, everything is so emotional and so sensitive and so like me, 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 instead of us as a country and what's best for us as a country. It's not hard to lose everything that America has created. I mean, history will continue to repeat itself and the greatest nations this world has ever known have fallen. If you don't take the time to really analyze some of the things that are occurring today and see how detrimental they are to the success long-term of our country, you will be on the side that is promoting the true demise of this country. I don't want to see us turn into some of the places that I visited. I don't want to see us live in a lifestyle or a lack of lifestyle that countries still to this day around the world live. I have the ability to sit here on a probably pretty expensive microphone on a probably pretty expensive computer, drinking whatever I want, eating whatever I want, watching Steve Sons enjoy life as a young kid without any repercussions. Take that into consideration that the majority of the world doesn't have that freedom. And you're, you'll be told they do, but you'll never visit. You'll never know. You never take the time to go figure it out yourself. You're just going to believe what you're being told. 
I can assure you that the lifestyle you live, even if you think it's a struggle, is significantly better than what the rest of this world experiences day to day. When Steve said there are rhinos that would rather switch over the aisle than continue to fight for what we believe in, let them go. Like he said, there's 3% of the 75 million people that would truly stand arm in arm to defend this country. And in my opinion, that's a patriot. That's somebody who is willing to put their life on the line and defend their family, their brother, their sister, their mom, their dad, their kids, because they know if they don't, all they're doing is turning it over to everything we've ever fought not to be. And we're losing that. And it's, it's frightening to me. And I pulled myself off of social media for the longest time because the fear of seeing what the majority believes made me think as a minority voter amongst my friend group, as a conservative Republican platform, I was being shunned and pushed away and I was told that my beliefs were wrong. Excuse me, I believe that I live in a country where I'm allowed to have my own thought process. I thought my pursuit for life and liberty and freedom is the same as yours, regardless of our political views. If we don't get back to the basics of what makes us great, how are we ever going to fix the wounds that we have open? And going into conflict moving forward, you, you hear so much BS rhetoric about a civil uprising, or as Steve says, these smaller civil kind of disturbances or skirmishes that are occurring across the U.S. I can assure you that a civil war is the last thing that this country wants or needs. Obviously, you have your keyboard warriors and you have your mainstream medias that'll continue to push crap that's going to make you feel like we're heading toward social distortion. Coming from somebody that served, and I can attest to this for probably most of my brothers and sisters that have done the same thing, war, especially here in the U.S., is not something that you want to experience. It's all funny and you know tough guy machismo, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. But would you really? If you really had to go clear your neighbor's house because they have a different political belief than you do, would you really do it? Would you really stand up for what you think is right, even if your neighbor didn't believe in the same thing? I think most of us would wary on the side of caution. If it came down to it, I think a lot of us would, at least I pray, would you know, put down the, the tough guy rhetoric and reach out to each other and figure out, you know, how do we come to a verbal agreement outside of a social discrepancy of, hey, my mayor said this and my president said this or my senator said this or the news anchor I listened on this radio station told me I should believe this. It's, uh, it's scary to me to think that a, a social revolution in a civil war is even something that's discussed openly on mainstream media. You don't, you don't want to go down that road and it's, it's, it's something that I think that we need to continue to have a conversation about that a political discrepancy doesn't need to lead to uh, violence in our communities. And it's sad to me that we watch the liberal media and our Democratic counterparts support the atrocious behaviors that we've watched all through the summer um, that's led to lives being lost, police officers' lives being lost, innocent civilians' being lives lost. And it's, it's almost as if it's promoted. I think of some of the rhetoric from our now vice president during the summer of where she said it's going to continue to happen. I hope it does until things change. Yet you have a president who tweets, 
peacefully protest and stand up for what you believe. And all of a sudden he's on trial for his second impeachment because of his violent rhetoric. To me, if you can't open your eyes and see that there's a significant disdain between how one side is represented and the other side, you have some sort of mental health issue. It's uh, it's sad. And I hope that we can come together and make sure that you don't do not ever nullify your beliefs and stand up for what you are. And I think as a conservative and as a Republican and as a patriot for this country, be a part of the 3%. I myself feel guilty that I censored myself for six months. And who did I appease? I appease the same platform that continues to tell me I'm not right in my beliefs. I think that's really well put. Um, and I, I will leave it at this is that I, again, I do, you look to that 3%. I do think there's a small portion of the population um, that, you know, you have to understand that one thing with, with people on the right is that if it were to come to a fight, it's fighting out of love, love for country, love for countrymen and women and Z's and everything else, but just love for country in general. And you're fighting against people who hate the country and, and we all know love always prevails over hate, right, guys? So, I mean, you're fighting for people that truly think that they are, they won the lottery by being born in America. And fighting for something that you love is far stronger than fighting for something that you hate. And uh, it, again, I, I don't think that, uh, that uh, Antifa or BLM coming down middle-class American streets in middle America, especially in Southern America is going to end well for anybody. Um, I hope the media and the Democrats stop encouraging this sort of behavior and this sort of violence and enabling it and justifying it and excusing it because it is going to head to um, a terrible path. Uh, that is going to wrap this up, except for we are going to do one more fast fire segment with Ryan. We're going to pop some questions off. Ryan, what is your favorite war movie? 13 hours. At this point, what difference does it make? Am I right, Hillary? Am I right? At this point, what difference does it make? Oh, man. It's not, and that's not even a war movie, but, I mean, what those men went through, eh, I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a combat environment. Uh, what is your concealed carry of choice? XD45. What is your favorite cheat food? Beer. Ryan, that's not food. <laughs> that's a beverage. It takes up about a third of my calories every day. So, dude, I've seen the pictures your wife posts of her food. You asshole! You uh, say my wife's authentic Hispanic <laughs> cooking, Darlene. You see the unappreciative nature of your husband. Now, me, I I appreciate your Hispanic cooking. Just the pictures of it, and I will say, I did have some of that delicious cooking that night. We were over there for the UFC fights. So, I mean, Darlene, I appreciate your cheap food. Um, so do I, babe. <laughs> uh, Ryan, what is your favorite car? He's a, he, uh, he is a, he is a manager at a local dealership. Uh, so that's why I asked the car question. What, what is your favorite, absolute favorite vehicle? Favorite vehicle of the past, uh, Chevelle, probably 67, 68 Chevelle SS favorite car of the present and future. Uh, Tesla truck, hands down. Yeah, buddy. What is your favorite beer? 
favorite beer is going to be Michelob Ultra or Bud Light. Shit hits the fan. You can only grab one firearm. One firearm. <laughs> you, can't, you can't say you're 50 caliber because you don't have access to that anymore. One firearm, one civilian firearm. Shit hits the fan. What do you grab? I've been loving my Sig Rattler. That's that's kind of my go-to rifle right now. Sweet. Uh, that'll wrap it up with Ryan. I just wanted to give you a little insight, some personal on Ryan. Um, I, I think this is going to do bonkers numbers in terms of listens. Uh, this is definitely the longest. Uh, we're breaking two hours easily. I think there's a lot of good information here. I loved having Ryan's life experience and getting – you know, his take on things today, a combat veteran have nothing but the utmost respect for uh, the combat veterans, the people. And I mean, everybody that served the military, all due respect, but specifically uh, the combat veterans that have just, I mean, they've seen the horrors of war and they've fought for this country. And, you know, we exist because of our freedoms exist because of people like Ryan. And it's a special breed of people. And uh, I don't think our veterans our combat veterans uh, get enough love from our government. Um, so uh, I just, Ryan, I want to thank you for everything you've done for this country. Uh, I also want to thank you uh, for taking the time to do this podcast with me today. We've been at this since, gosh, you got over here a little before 1230. And it's just, after, we've been at this for damn near four hours. So um, he went and picked up kids with me. We've done everything today. So I appreciate it very much. No, thanks for having me on. And, uh, you know, it's very rare I share even parts of my story. If, if you know my friends or my family, some of this will even be new to them. So this platform is you know, nice and it's uh, the opportunity for me, hopefully, to change some opinions or influence some others or just to continue to build beliefs in what you stand for in the first place. Um, I do want to say if, if you get a chance, I am going to give a little shout out here. Um, go and Google the movie The Forgotten Battalion. You can rent it for really cheap. Um, it's about my unit in their post-Iraq, post-Afghanistan uh, fight for normal civilian life. Um, has a lot of guys I've served with. Um, and I think the message that's being spread through that movie, as well as moving forward with our veteran community, is huge. If you know somebody that served in a combat situation, make sure you give them a pat on the back, because regardless of if it was an easy kosher deployment or it was the hardest thing they've ever experienced. They come back with something that's different than when they left. Um, you know, it's, it's easy to kind of put people in boxes, but I think as one of the things we need to continue to stand by as conservatives and uh, Republicans is taking care of our military forces, regardless of uh, the things they've experienced. So thanks for having me, Steve. I appreciate it. Thank you. And that is going to wrap episode six. Episode seven, we are going to jump into how the left controls the language and how we need to stop that shit from happening. When they control the language, they control the direction that it goes. Uh, it's very dangerous. It's very detrimental. We're going to cover a lot of topics on that. So make sure you tune in episode seven. Thank you guys very much. That is a wrap for Lucino Brief, episode six. Thank you. God bless you and God bless America.